Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. That was Andrew Stotts, the host of My Worst Investment Ever, which is an awesome podcast, and I'm proud to have Andrew as my first guest ever on this podcast. He's a man who has forgotten more about investing than I'll ever know, and he's going to share some great insights about money, about how investments go wrong, and about life abroad in Bangkok, Thailand. Welcome to the podcast where entrepreneurs go to learn about alternative retirement investing strategies and structures and all things related to planning a successful, prosperous retirement. If you're self-employed, if you're a gig worker or solopreneur, you've come to the right place to learn how to retire wealthier, retire sooner, and retire happier. This is the Rogue Retirement Lounge. Andrew Stotts is a PhD, a CFA, and is the CEO of A. Stotts Investment Research, a company that provides institutional and high net worth investors with ready-to-invest stock portfolios that aim to beat the benchmark through superior stock selection. Andrew is the host of the podcast, My Worst Investment Ever, which is a show that exists for the millions of people out there who want to learn how to invest safely. Andrew, welcome to the Rogue Retirement Lounge. Thank you, Matt. I'm super excited to be here. Well, and full disclosure, I was on your podcast uh, a few weeks back, and I am a big fan of your podcast, and I've listened to many episodes. And for those of you who hear the title, My Worst Investment Ever, it sounds like it might be negative, and I have to just assure you that it's not. It's the lessons that people learn through bad investments or uh, you know, mistakes that they've made, but it always ends up being very positive. And uh, Andrew is an awesome host. And if, out of all the podcasts that I listen to, Andrew is one of the best listeners and synthesizers of the information that he's covering out there. So I highly recommend My Worst Investment Ever podcast. And so, Andrew, thanks for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to Bangkok, Thailand, of all places to live? I will definitely tell you that. And just to wrap up on the podcast, I'll just introduce people to it by saying, hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. And that's how I start every podcast, because the reason why we go through these loss stories is so that we can get better. And I've learned over the years that risk management is a much more important factor than I originally thought. I thought, for instance, if you look at baseball, the best players are the ones that hit home runs every time they go up. But I realized that singles and doubles and not getting struck, you know, getting a strikeout, you know, are the things that really build wealth over time. So that's just a, a I welcome anybody to come to the show and listen. Now, as far as my life is concerned, my basically when I grew up in Ohio, I actually, you know, immediately at a young age got addicted to drugs and alcohol and managed to make it through three different treatment centers. And at the age of 16, or sorry, 17 in 1982, I got clean and sober. And I've been clean and sober for 38, almost getting, getting close to 40 years now. Oh, wow, congratulations. Thank you. So that's kind of, you know, it's, it's hard to understand my story without understanding that because when I listen to stories of loss, 
you know, I want to relate to them. I want to understand how people felt and I'm not afraid to talk about those things. So I think that's gives a little background. I, I went to school at Cal State Long Beach and then I worked for Pepsi in Los Angeles. And then I just got the fever that I just wanted to go, you know, Los, Long Beach at the time was a city where 10% of the population was Cambodian and Cambodians had fled. Oh. Yeah, they had fled from uh, the Pol Pot Khmer Rouge regime and they arrived in Long Beach. And so my girlfriend at the time was Cambodian and I got to know her and her family and, and the, the awful you know, trauma that they went through to get out of there and to get to America. So I had a lot of respect for that. And then I read everything I could about Asia, but also about, in particular, about Cambodia, the history, as well as the political situation. So I knew a lot about it. I knew a lot about capitalism, about communism, all that stuff. And so I was originally planning on going to Cambodia, but in 1989, when I traveled for the first time to Asia, it just really wasn't a safe time for me to be in Cambodia. There wasn't really you know, business to do. So I decided Thailand was a better place. So I went to Thailand and I taught finance for my first year. And then I joined the stock market in an investment bank. And within three years, I was number one. I was the head of research of the number one foreign broker. And I built a career as an analyst uh, in the stock market. And I did that for 20 years until I left my job there to set up my own company called ASTOTS Investment Research. And I do also have a coffee factory that we started in 1995. So while I was an analyst, we were also setting up a side hustle that became of big business or let's say big for me. What year did you arrive in, in uh, Thailand? 1992. 92. Okay. So you're, you're in the middle of being an analyst and you decide that you're not busy enough. You're not working hard enough. So you decide to start a coffee company as a side hustle. Tell me about that. What, what is entailed with starting a, a coffee company? That yeah. sounds huge. And it sounds a little overwhelming. Yeah. That uh, basically the way, well, you know, it's the, uh, the confidence of youth, as we say, <laughs> um, I was so confident. But, you know, I didn't really know if I knew what was ahead, for, ahead of me, I probably wouldn't have done it. But that's the beauty of life. We don't really know what's coming. But uh, right. my my best friend from Ohio, we also lived together in California and we just, you know, we liked each other. So we we'd spent time with each other. He went to study in Japan and then he came to Thailand to see me and he said, let's start a coffee business. It's like okay. this coffee here is terrible. It's all instant coffee. What an opportunity. We could build a business. We could supply, you know, we could supply offices. That was our original idea. Buildings were exploding across Thailand, across Bangkok. So we thought we would do an office coffee service. And we thought we would buy coffee from another company, a roaster, and then we would sell that on. And so it was really a selling operation. Okay. But we found that we couldn't, couldn't find a supplier that would give us the standard we want. So we said, well, let's just set up a factory. I was doing well. I was making good money. And so we used that money to set up that factory and we started selling. And then um, I was working full time at an investment bank and my best friend, Dale, was the managing director. And I think, you know, the key to my success is that I had Dale and I've known each other since we were at 14. And they always say, don't go into business with your best friends. You know, yes, they do. And uh, somehow I, I would attribute it to a couple of things. Dale and I weren't best buddies by just hanging out in school together. We, my roommate, when I was like 18, uh, moved out and Dale was looking for a place. And I said, why don't you move in with me? 
So we got to know each other as roommates, which meant we gave each other space. You know, and that beginning of our relationship uh, was very different than I, you know, my other best friend, Dave, you know, he and I just hung out all the time together. So even the, 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 the prospect of living together was, didn't work as well for Dave and myself when we lived together at, at one point. But with Dale, it just worked. You know, I left him alone. He left me alone. And, and we had respect for each other. And so when we started the business, what we said is, if the business ever gets in the way of our relationship, we're going to close the business. Okay. And, and it and, hasn't. And it hasn't. You know, we made that commitment. I think part of it is that I'm a shareholder in the business and advisor, but I'm not an employee of the business. So we're equal shareholders. Dale's the managing director. And we've kept that clear. We made a conscious decision to keep me in the financial world. And I was doing well and I was making good money and I was making great connections and relationships. So we felt like there was a lot of value in that. And I believe that there was a lot of value in that. And I can honestly say that there was, you know, a lot of times where I had a chance where I could have gone into the coffee business, but it just wasn't, I was so in love with analyzing things as an analyst in the stock market. And I could analyze coffee works, our business also. And I could use the data that I had to think about benchmarking the company and how to make this company financially world-class. And so really, I think for both of us, we don't regret the fact that I was more of an advisor and a shareholder than I was an employee. And then it really, then next came down to, really, it just comes down to when I disagree with what Dale's doing, how hard should I push? And I think that that's, and I decided that if I push to the point where he really would be really upset, I decided that at that point, I would just back off and say, yeah, that's my opinion, but you know, you're on the front lines and you're making that decision. And so therefore I step back. And I think I learned that from Thai people, Thai people, you know, the unwritten rule in Thailand is that confrontation is not allowed. And there's pros and cons to that. In America, of course, confrontation is allowed and is oftentimes encouraged, but in Thailand, it is simply not allowed. And so I'd learned to, you know, hold, bite my tongue and, you know, just hold back because I also, you know, you never really know the pressures that someone's facing on the front lines. And so that's really how it's worked between Dale and myself. Interesting. Okay. So, well, that sounds very healthy. And as somebody who's had partners that in business that are friends and it turns into disastrous partnerships, uh, I can tell you that, uh, that, uh, you've done great if you're able to have had a successful business and retain your friendship. So congratulations on that. So now 25 years later, how's the business doing? Well, I'd say, um, we, we are prior to the pandemic, you know, we were getting up to about 7 million US in revenue. And nice. we have about 100 employees. And Thailand's kind of one of the interesting things about Thailand, Matt, that most people don't know, is that all companies, you know, in, in America, any company listed in the stock market, their financial information is um, available, right. made public. Sure. But if you're a private company, is your information made public? about your financial performance? No. In Thailand, it's mandated by law that every company's, every company, small, medium, large, listed in the stock market or not, the financial performance, every, the annual performance must be published publicly. Really? 
So it's fascinating. So I'm, I'm a little bit less, um, there's, you know, I mean, obviously you can try to keep it quiet, but if anybody wants to find out, they just go to the Ministry of Commerce and they've got a website and you can type in the company's name. Now it'll be, sometimes it'll be in Thai, but that's not a problem for me, but all company information is public. Fascinating. Okay. So I got to ask, I mean, globally, it, I, I've never heard of such a thing. Is that common that, not, that privately held companies have to be able to disclose the books? Not that common. But one of the things I would say is that America probably is more secretive than other countries. In fact, you know, people talk about going outside of America to conceal your wealth. You know, sure. people talk about that. But actually, the protection of... Uh, of your information about yourself uh, and your business is probably more highly protected in the U.S. If you were, let's say, a, uh, an, an Asian person that has a business, you could you could get, go to Nevada or something, and you'd get more privacy protection than you'd get in a country like Thailand, particularly because the U.S. has signed agreements and basically strong-armed every country into signing agreements that banks all around the world must right. turn over information about any. Everybody they have to confirm is not a U.S. citizen. If they are, they need to turn that information over. So are you still a U.S. citizen? I still am, although I don't know how long that will be, but I'm a Thai and a U.S. citizen. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, well, so one of the things that I talk about is for people who are planning to retire, that you should have at least on your radar somewhere is this uh, the concept of a geographic plan B, where if you can't afford to deal with the cost of living and where you are now in the United States, um, and you aren't going to end up with the nest egg that you think you need, then there are hundreds of countries where you can go and live for a lot less and live a great life and have great health care and eat great food and, you know, and meet great people and for a fraction of the cost of living in the United States. So even though you're not retired, can you can you give me a little bit of a yeah. rundown of what, what sure. life is like in Thailand and what uh, costs and healthcare and stuff like that that the, the everyday person uh, would need to know? Well, a good example of that is my mother. I brought her here on a retirement visa, which I believe the age is 55 now for a retirement visa in Thailand. If you come to Thailand and you want to get a retirement visa, it's not that difficult. You know, you're not supposed to work. You need to have a work permit to work. And so there are cases where people come on a retirement visa and then they find work or they decide they want to work. And then they've got to switch their visa over to what would be called a non-immigrant B, B visa. And then that would okay. allow them to work. But generally, if you came to Thailand on a uh, retirement visa, now, of course, let's just say that you have an online business selling something related to health. And uh, <laughs> yes, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you Sounds have that. Familiar. Yeah. And that, that website is turning over, you know, it's making good money and, and you, you're still working on it, you know, and you want to keep right. moving it or whatever it is. And it's your money maker. You know, the fact that that's dominant, that's, you don't, you don't domicile that into Thailand, you know, you, you, you manage that asset outside of Thailand from Thailand. So that's probably not a big deal. And therefore you can derive income from that investment and then send that into a bank account in Thailand. And, you know, when you retire, they want to see that you have some money uh, in a bank account to say, you know, you can support yourself. And also that that regular income is helpful. So Thailand is is a great place for that. Also, remember that as soon as you move out of the US for more than half the year, I believe it is, 
you get a foreign income tax exemption. So about the first $100,000 that you make is not taxed in the US. And, you know, so then anything over that then is taxed. But the point is, is that that gives you a little cushion uh, to manage. So I would say that uh, you're not, a, you're not, you can't get away from US taxes. Uh, you know, one of the alternatives to get away from US taxes is Puerto Rico, though at some point that, sure. may, that may not work. And right. that would, but Thailand is a place where you could retire and you could live a good life and things are not that expensive and people are really nice. And, you know, the hospitals and the healthcare is very good. Okay, so tell me, uh, since you've been there for uh, going on 30 years, um, yeah, from a first-person perspective, uh, have you ever broken a leg or, or have you ever had a, without digging into your medical history, have you ever had a situation where you've needed medical care that was more than just a, a scrape? And how, how was it? Well, as you asked that question, I think, actually, I've been pretty lucky because I've been here 30 years and I really haven't had any. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm a, let's just say that my podcast, I take it to heart. It really is about risk management. So I okay. try to manage my risk. But um, what I can tell you is two things. First of all, my friend, uh, my best friend, Dale, got dengue fever, which he got oh, in wow. uh, Laos. And then we came to, uh, to Bangkok and then got him in the hospital here. But the care is, you know, fantastic. And uh, he went to this hospital called Bumroom Rock Hospital. And that particular hospital later, uh, I was asked by the head of that hospital to be a financial advisor. And it turns out that hospital had written software that ran the hospital that I was, I was hired as a financial advisor to negotiate with the buyer to get a higher price. And they had a buyer that came along and said, we want to buy that software and take it over and then run it and use it around the world. And oh, wow. it's like an operating system for a hospital. And the buyer was Microsoft. And so, oh, I yeah, I negotiated that deal with you know with Microsoft. There was like seven people on their acquisition team, and myself on the finance side, and then the founder of this software business that was in relation to the hospital. But uh, you know that that was very very world class stuff. And so I got to look at the inside of the hospital because I had to do that to do all the financial valuations and stuff. And right. I would say, um, I'm very comfortable to say that if I got sick, I would go straight to that hospital. And my mom, we live not far away. My mom, you know, in my mom's case, we went to the hospital and we also, um, you know, you can sign a living will. is something that my parents have done very well. Uh, they've always had living wills. So that helps us when my father was, you know, had his uh, hemorrhage. Uh, you know, it helped guide my sister and myself on what actions to take. We weren't really sure about whether the living will that mom did in the U.S. was still kind of applicable. So we just went to the hospital and basically we sat down with a doctor and he assessed my mom's, you know, cognitive abilities, which he said were good. And then he basically said, OK, if this happens, what do you want us to do? If this happens, what do you want us to do? If this happens. And she just basically said, you know, do not resuscitate. And she went through right. all the checklists. And now we have that filed at the hospital. So if my mom really got, you know, in a tough situation and we went to the hospital they would know what to do my mom would know what's coming and i know how to handle that situation so that was very professionally handled and for retirement you know you got to think about these things absolutely fascinating okay so what about day-to-day -day stuff uh like your rent and what uh i know you don't drink but like uh the cost of a, a dinner and a glass of wine there in in where where you're at 
Well, I'd say that um, you have to think about things in kind of a two-tier system. First tier is if you come to Thailand and you say, like, really got to keep my costs down, then you're going to have to try to avoid some of the Western treats. Sure. Because almost anything that's imported is expensive. Let's take wine. There's a, you know, 100% tax on wine. Let's okay. say let's say that you want to buy a Lamborghini, you know, a really fancy car that's made outside of the, outside of Thailand. You could pay as much as a three hundred percent tax on that. Oh wow! Yeah. So basically, uh, and if you want to live in a fancy apartment, you know, you can pay a lot for that. But for me, I never really needed to live that life, and I would say for most retired people, you don't really want to live that life uh, because it's just it's risky, you know, given that you have a limited amount of money and, and ability to earn. So sure. I would say that if you came to Thailand and you were willing to live, you know, a down life a little bit where you're not getting all those luxuries, you probably could do that for rent of, let's say 600 to $1,500 a month. Okay. You could probably do that at, let's just say um, $10 a day to twenty dollars a day for food okay i mean you could go down from that if you really said i'm just going to keep it simple but um but i would say that's probably reasonable um as far as you know uh you probably would use grab and things like that i mean you can, grab. You can buy it yeah uh grab is like uh, uber oh okay okay yeah we, that's our that's our uber but oh. you, you would use, you know, that you, you could buy like a local car made by Toyota or something. And you're going to, you know, you'll pay a little bit higher price than you'd pay in America. But, uh, you know, generally, I would say you could live a pretty nice life. And, um, you know, and there's retirement places and the, the like that you can also find out, you know, how you could find a place when you needed some sort of assisted living or something like that. And I would say that's where Thai people can really shine is that they, they are all about service mind and bringing comfort to people, particularly, you know, older people. Interesting. Okay. I love that. So um, what about the language? So um, first of all, I would say you don't really need Thai language if you're living in Bangkok and in probably most major cities. Uh, it's not, it's not required as opposed to if you went to China, as an example, having been back and forth, quite a bit, I would say that's a much harder environment because it's also just a tough environment in China. Right. I would say Japan, if you went to Japan, um, you know, it's just, it's a more insular, uh, it's a little bit more of a closed tight society. So you'd have, a, you wouldn't, you would have a problem with the language and you would have a problem breaking in. But Thailand, I would say is not difficult to, to break in and, and make friends and all that. And I would say that um, the language is not a huge problem. And of course, if you wanted to learn the language, you would be a superhero because they would appreciate it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in, in most countries, learning a little bit of the language goes a long way. I know that for me, I, I major or I minored in Japanese in school. Um, and when I go to Japan, it's like that, that it's like a shining light when I, you know, ask for a beer in Japanese or ask for directions. It's like, Oh, Hey, you know, it's like they're, they're like almost like honored that I took the time to learn the language and uh, which is a pretty cool feeling. Yeah. I mean, imagine if someone from China came and lived in, in America, 
and you know you ran into them they don't speak any english they can't communicate you know how would you feel about that well right. for the typical american they think my god learn Amer learn english or you know how are you going to function without you know whatever they would think or say right well it's the same thing for us when we go abroad is you know think about you know how we're lucky and, and you know that comes down to also another thing is that you know i when i when i was young it was china it was japanese that were kind of taking over america sure japanese cars and japanese tourists were everywhere remember japanese were buying big buildings in manhattan and all of that oh and, yeah and i remember that kind of wave and one of the things about japanese people is that they would they would travel as tourists in buses and you know that was very foreign for a lot of us because you know we went backpacking across europe or whatever we did and then the Chinese, the same thing is that now, you know, China is a much bigger wave into America and they go on buses. But remember, part of the reason why they're on buses is because they do not speak English. Right. So the option of them just backpacking across America with no English skill. And, you, you know, it just do doesn't it. make sense. It doesn't right. make sense. So we have a, a distinct advantage in that, you know, the in English is spoken around the world. And when you live in a country of 1.4 citizens 1.4 billion citizens that all speak chinese for many chinese you you would say well why do i need to speak english sure absolutely and, i mean go to america and say you know there's 370 million or whatever and they may say why do i need to speak chinese because this is america <laughs> right I, so same thing right interesting that that brings back memories i lived in la for a short while in uh 1989 and 90 and i lived right uh, right off hollywood boulevard behind the the chinese theater and every day you would see busloads of Japanese tourists, all of whom, and I'm not making stereotypes, but all of them had a, a Canon AE-1 SLR camera around their neck and, and they'd come out of the bus. And I thought it was just like, Hey, there's some more Japanese folks, you know, they were, uh, they were into it, but they traveled in these tour groups and it was, you, you would rarely see them off in splintered off it was always in in a group yep. interesting yep yeah well there was a thai restaurant in north hollywood called sanam luang and okay. when i lived in long beach we used to drive up there and uh, and go uh eat there so that was a, a good memory of those days back in that that was 89 90 91 and then i left la just after the la riots in 92 oh wow yeah, I was fortunate to get out in, in 90 before that all happened. So I got to watch it from afar. Um, real quickly, I want to talk about your podcast because I think that everybody can learn from other people's mistakes. And that in the best of all world, when you hear other people's mistakes, you you might be able to prevent yourself from making the same mistakes. So Tell me, related to self-employed people, can you can you just share some of the lessons that you've learned and that that are maybe some kind of recurring themes that you see uh, from people making quote unquote uh, their worst investment ever? Yeah, and to just highlight what you just said, I love the quote from Otto von Bismarck where he said, "Only a fool learns from his mistakes; a wise man learns from the mistakes of others." Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. So I'm trying to be a wise man, man. And I think, <laughs> I think I can help your audience to be more wise based upon what I learned. And after being an analyst, I, I received 500 written stories 
of loss. And I've done now more than 360 interviews of people. So I have a lot of data. And from that data, I grouped it and tried to figure out, is there some commonalities here? And I came up with six common mistakes. And I call it six ways to lose your money and six strategies to win. And the first most common mistake, whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're a person just investing, is fail to do their own research. Okay. And people just sense. people jump into things and they don't they don't do the research. Second most common mistake is fail to properly assess and manage risk. I say assess because that's kind of before you get into an investment and manage risk is once you're in that investment. And I I would just give one little story to to illustrate how to handle this in in one way. I I've spent my year years as an analyst so I do my own research. But once, once we had an opportunity to expand our coffee business to Vietnam and Dale came to me and said, let's, you know, let's talk about this. So we, we agreed that Dale would work and go to Vietnam, talk to people, go through everything and try to pull together the case of investing in Vietnam. And he would present it on a Monday, a few months later. And so on that Monday, Dale presented the case and I went to, I went to the office and we sat alone talking to each other and he put up his numbers about what he thought the potential was. He had definitely done his research and he had, you know, painted a, a pretty, you know, it was, a, it was a relatively optimistic scenario. And so we went through it. And at the end of it, I had a lot of questions. But at the end of it, the key thing is that there was no discussion of risk. And the reason why that is, is because I've learned from the podcast to separate your research on return from your research on risk. So what we did, okay. then the following Monday, we convened a second meeting. And this was the meeting about risk. And then we just discussed everything that could go wrong with this investment. And from that, we ended up deciding not to make the investment. Now, the benefit of separating risk and return, it takes some of the personality out of it because, and that's really, Dale and I value our relationship. We do not want to set ourselves up to bring personalities you know, so strongly in there that it hurts us. So it allowed Dale to, to present his side of the story, the, the positive side. And then it allowed him also to attack his own story when we discussed the risk. And then from that, we could have a really great discussion about it. And then we thought, okay, in the end, this is going to cost us, let's say $100,000 to make this investment. And here's, here's the return we think we're going to get from it. And here's the risk level we think that that's possible that we don't get that return. We said, well, what if we were to invest that 100000 in our business right now? Where would we put it? We had said we knew exactly where we put it, and we knew it was a pretty safe investment because we know our business here. We know how to operate it, and this 100000 would produce a much higher, a, a little bit higher return, but with dramatically less risk. So I really advise you know, listeners to separate the research on return from the research on risk. Okay, so as an entrepreneur... Uh, I and I'm assuming my listeners as well. I gotta, I gotta hear. So you jump into opportunities like these, like okay, going to Vietnam. This, this could be big. We could make yeah. this, 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 this. What were the big risk factors, if you recall? What were the big things, the the big red flags on the risk side that made you not go? So the first thing is that when we expanded, if we were to expand to Vietnam. What we will be doing is introducing an, a whole nother level of complexity in our business, because first okay. of all, that's a new country. 
with new laws, new customs, and new language. Oh, yeah. Right there is, that would basically mean that we would have to build out a management team of people in that country that we could trust to help us build that business. And one of my friends, I have a friend in Vietnam, I have a lot of friends in Vietnam, and I asked him if he would be willing to come and talk to us. And he came to talk to us about the challenges that he faced in running a business in Vietnam. And we really just wanted to understand. And he brought his wife, who's Vietnamese. And the two of them came to our office and sat down and we just had a great conversation. And they really gave us, you know, both sides of the story. And we said, we don't, we're not sure what we're doing, but it helped us to uncover what potential risks were out there. And that part, it was part of what Dale did in his research was to try to think about, you know, what it would take. So what we saw was number one, there was a lot of complexity. The second thing that we saw is that we then tried to calculate the potential upside. You know, I mean, the potential upside's $50 million. Well, <laughs> I can handle the complexity. Sure. But the potential upside wasn't $10 million. It was much, much less. And that had to do with coffee consumption per capita. It had to do with the competitiveness in the, the um, remember, we're a coffee roaster. We're not a retail outlet or anything like that. The competitiveness in that space, it had to do with uh, the tourists and, you know, so many different factors that we went into. But yeah, that ended up getting us to realize that the potential upside wasn't that big and the risks and complexity that it added to our business was massive compared to if we said, well, why don't we expand our business to a new city in Bangkok, in, in Thailand? Right. Same language, same laws, same people. We have a management team that all understands, you know, they're Thai and they understand, you know, everything. So that right. was an example of where we were introducing a level of complexity in the business that we decided wasn't worth the upside. Interesting. Okay, back to your list of yep. six ways. Number three, driven by emotion or flawed thinking. And I think this one, it's, uh, you know, most people just don't do much research and they just dump their money into things and not thought about it. But there are also people that are driven by excitement. You know, think of cryptocurrency and how, uh -huh. how exciting that is. And so I've combined these two, you know, emotion is something different than flawed thinking. Um, you know, emotion is when you're just really excited about something. And I've seen so many of my guests come on and tell the story of how they just got super excited. In fact, just the other day I was reading, I was listening to someone I wrote down. I got excited. That's exactly uh -huh. what he said, you know, and part of how I try to be a good listener is to just write down what people are saying. And he said, I got excited. And he got excited for an investment, he put his money in, he overrode his girlfriend's wishes and said, this is the right thing. And then that completely lost, you know, all the value. And it was just when his girlfriend and him were, had a child and she oh. was pregnant, they were ready to get married. She was British. He was Australian. He had brought her to Australia. She was very vulnerable at the time. And he realized that, you know, as he looks back, he realized that that was an emotion driven and it, it did damage, you know, to the relationship that he had to repair. And then, you know, flawed, flawed thinking is just simply that people don't think straight, you know, and there's a lot of steps to a process that they'll skip when they get excited about an idea. So that yeah, money, money, money is a, a, a great source of flawed thinking. Exactly. So mistake number four, misplaced trust. Mm. And the point is it's, it's remarkable. You know, you could take a, and this is an interesting one about entrepreneurs 
Um, I've advised entrepreneurs over the years about investing. And, you know, I'll just tell a story about uh, one particular case where uh, the entrepreneurs involved basically made a lot of money by selling their company. And when they sold their company, they got contacted by the investment banker. You know, they're always there. And basically, the investment banker gave them all kinds of advice, which was ultimately optimized for the investment banker. And most of those people that had received a huge windfall from selling their business had lost most of it within a few years. This is a real disaster. And I think for the entrepreneurs listening, be very careful for two things. Overconfidence bias, because entrepreneurs are confident people. They've done, they have all the reasons to be confident about their success, but don't take that overconfidence into the stock market because it is a brutal battlefield in the stock market, number one. And then the second thing is don't make the mistake of misplacing trust. As I say, when I advise people about financial, I say, just never invest in anything where someone has contacted you or called you through contacted you or called you do not invest in anything that you've been contacted about. Well, they're like, well, how am I supposed to find what I'm investing if I don't? Well, it's called do the research. And if you ask someone questions, if you do the research, that's a little bit different, but everybody that's calling or contacting you is calling and contacting you to make money from whatever move that you make. Now that doesn't mean that everybody's unethical, but it just means that if you think about it that way, any call or communication that you receive is because someone is being paid to reach out to you, then it helps you to think twice about just following that advice blindly. Interesting. That's good. So number five. Yes. Failed to monitor their investment. Think about that friend that said, hey, I'm going to set up a restaurant. Eh, I'll give you 10,000 bucks, you know. So and then they. And then they just kind of disappear in the restaurant. You know, it's going, but you just don't really know what's happening. Or another guy, he was an entrepreneur and he was so busy that all he did whenever he got his statements from his investment company was he put them in the bottom drawer of his desk. He just didn't have time and he didn't monitor it. And so, you know, sometimes not monitoring works well if you've got a you know, if you, you invested in some kind of, you know, there's just stories of Rip Van Winkle, the guy wakes up 30 years later and he's a, <laughs> right. you know, he's a multimillionaire. But in most cases, what's happening is people aren't monitoring. So I always say, particularly in the area of startups and all that, is that when you put money into a company before you put money in, try to figure out and ask them that I want a monthly update and I just need, you know, 30 minutes of your time and Let's talk on Mondays, the, the second Monday of every month or whatever about how things went last month. But you've got to, you know, there's nothing that grows without care and except weeds. You know, we can, we can see that a garden that is not ten, you know, tended to will grow, but it will grow weeds. So if you want a beautiful garden, this comes from one of the great books, As a Man Thinketh by James Allen. He talks about how our mind is a garden. And if we don't, cultivate our mind Mm. something will grow in there something will fill that space so that you know i would say make sure you monitor your investment and number six this is a catch-all this is a catch-all because i kind of didn't know how to do it 
So number six is invested in a startup company. The number of people that have come on the show that invested in a startup company and lost it all uh, is pretty big. And I would say the best way to handle this is realize that, you know, I say start from this reality and that is you are likely to lose everything. Right. Because startups are binary. Fascinating. You know, I made the mistake in, uh, I think, 2017. I live in Oregon. We uh, legalized marijuana for recreational use. And an old employer of mine contacted me about an investment. I, one, failed to adequately research what was going to happen to the price of marijuana when there was a glut on the market once all these people started selling. I failed to assess, manage my risk. I didn't look at who was going to be tending mm. those, those gardens. I, had, I was very emotional because I thought I was going to essentially be able to retire off of my investment. I had flawed thinking. I misplaced trust. I should have known when I did get contacted that I, and, and I won't get into the skeeginess of the dude who contacted me, but I, mis, I had misplaced trust. I next failed to monitor my investment. I didn't go and check out the job sites. I didn't go and see what they were spending their money on. I did not monitor the investment. Um, and I lost everything. I, I, and for me, it was only 75 grand, but for me, that was a lot of money. That is and, a lot of money for and, all of and us. That, and that was vaporized. So anyway, I think that's a, that's a great list. And shall uh, we say up in smoke? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. And not in a fun way. So, so you, so Andrew, you've got a, a class, actually you've got multiple online classes that teach people about investing in money. And you've got one that I saw that's how to start building your wealth by investing in the stock market. So could self-employed people who are thinking about retirement, could they benefit from taking your class and tell, tell me a little bit about it? What I, what I like to say is that, you know, um, let's not confuse creating wealth with growing wealth. And <clears throat> if we ask the question, you know, to the listener out there, how do we create wealth? Well, there's only a few ways. The first way, most common way is to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Most rich people in the world build business. So business is right. where we create wealth. And now you can say also that if you are a high paid executive, let's say you earn $100,000 a month and you spent $90,000 a month, well, you've created wealth of 10,000. That, that is really created wealth. Now, if you could figure out how to live on 40,000, then you've now created wealth of 60,000. So you can get rich or at least build up a lot of wealth through the gap between your income and your spending individually. But for the right. typical entrepreneur, I think the, the challenge that they face is that they see the stock market, they have confidence because their entrepreneurs are naturally confident. And then they think that they're going to create wealth in the stock market, but the stock market is for growing wealth. And anybody that goes into the stock market to create wealth will, you know, there, there are people that do, and by luck, we have people that do, and by skill, we have people that do, but generally creating wealth in the stock market is very hard, but growing wealth is not that difficult. And particularly if you're an entrepreneur, you're, in, you're engaged in a very high risk activity as an entrepreneur. You put your whole life into that business. 
So then if you take your money that you're investing and you put it in high risk activities, it's like you're really, you're really not protecting yourself. And so therefore, uh, what I teach in this course, how to start building your wealth, investing in the stock market, which is a, a book that I sell on Amazon. It's also an online course is oh. how can a, an individual start investing in a way that will allow them to grow their wealth over time without worrying about it too much. And that really is what it's all about. If somebody says that oh, I want to pick stocks and I want to do all this, I want to be the next Warren Buffett. Well, take the valuation masterclass that I have where it's 150 hours about how to value companies. <clears throat> oh, wow. So really, you know, that whole course is something that I, and I wrote the course for my five nieces and my five nieces did not uh, have an interest in the stock market. Uh, they don't watch CNN or CNBC or uh, Bloomberg or whatever. And so mm -hmm. I really had to, 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 to write that course in a way that uh, just in, anybody could understand it. And I've had people who are very experienced take it and say, oh my God, you woke me up to some realities and very beginner people that that's the right reason why I named it, how to start building your wealth, because it's a great starting point. Interesting. Okay. And uh, uh, any other classes or books that you would recommend that you've created uh, that uh, my audience of self-employed people might benefit from? The course that I recently have come out with is really a culmination of my work over the years as an analyst and as a business owner. And, and if you ask me, what's the number one mistake that business owners make? You know, I think one of the big mistakes is they don't have monthly financial statements. And so if I was to give one advice, one piece of advice to, find, to, to business owners is make sure you have fine, full financial statements, balance sheet, P&L, and cash flow statement on a monthly basis on time and accurate. And I've been shocked at the number of people that don't have that. And just getting a business, one part of my business in Thailand is helping entrepreneurs get that set up, which can take some effort if you have neglected the finances of the business. But once you get that, basically, once you get that up and running, the course that I have is called Finance Made Ridiculously Simple. And it really is about how to understand those financial statements, the ratios and all that. And then for those people that complete that course and say, I really want to make my company financially world-class, that's a whole nother level of uh, teaching and consulting that I do to help entrepreneurs take their companies to financially world-class. Because like, what are you doing? You know, you're messing around with a huge amount of your time. If you're not making your company financially world-class or you're not making it financially successful, then you're setting yourself up for a disaster you know, that you could sell this business and not get what you thought you've devoted all your life to this and you haven't. And I know the feeling because I've been there with my own business, coffee business, and going through this pandemic has been a refresher of that. But basically what I want to do is help companies and entrepreneurs bulletproof their businesses so that they don't face that kind of situation. And that really came from we, we supply one of the global food companies in the world and we supply all their restaurants in Thailand and they do a audit of our factory every year and it's a quality audit. We basically pass that audit for 15 years now and we get better and better until at one point we reached, you know, very high level. And I went to the, the whole company. We had like a get together to celebrate that we had hit this, you know, A level grade. And right. I said, you know, I said, look, I can tell you, you guys are 
you know, you're amazing. You know, you, you now are at a world-class level on quality and you can say that with absolute confidence because the 600 questions that you were asked by the inspectors, you passed up to this level. And those 600 questions are the same around the world. So you truly are world-class in quality. So I was driving home and I was asking myself wow. the question as a financial guy, the question is, are we world-class financially? And I didn't have an answer for that. And that led me down a path between being an analyst and picking stocks and looking at companies and wanting my own company to do well, that I created something called world-class benchmarking scorecard, where I benchmark every company you know, in the world, private or public, relative to their global peers. And then I basically use that tool to help my management team to make Coffee Works financially world-class. And now I use that to help individuals who have companies to make their companies financially world-class. Fascinating. Well, for everyone, uh, I will have links to all of uh, Andrew's products and programs and as well as his contact information in the show notes. So definitely uh, look for those. And I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued by that, uh, by that stock class, just because I'm, I'm somebody who's lost a lot of money in the stock market. Um, and it, it's so timely now with this whole Robin hood and people putting their stimmy checks into the stock market and, you know, young kids getting involved. We have this, you kind of think a couple of days of watching CNBC and you know, everything. And so anyway, it's, it's, it's important to get educated. And, uh, I believe that your class was, would be a great way for people to get started. So before we end today, Andrew, we kind of covered, I've got a little couple of lightning round questions. And the first thing was when, you know, what, what are the biggest mistakes that people make? And, and you kind of covered that with your, the business, mm -hmm. but technically I'm guessing that it's kind of the same thing with your retirement, uh, you know, on a personal level, failing to keep a personal balance sheet and keep your personal uh, P and L's and whatnot. Uh, is also a big mistake in planning for your retirement. Any, any, any other big mistakes that you see self-employed people make as they plan for their golden years? No, number one mistake is overconfidence. They leave okay. the realm of their business with a huge amount of confidence that they've rightly deserved. And they bring that overconfidence to the stock market and they get taken to the cleaners by the very, very, very experienced traders throughout the world that have been in the stock market for years. It's like sauntering up to a, a poker table <laughs> with some of the best poker players in the world and go, I don't know much about this, but I really want to try with all of my money. So really want to wake entrepreneurs up. Don't get sucked into overconfidence bias. It's one of it's the third biggest mistake is driven by emotion or flawed thinking. So I'd say that's number one. Okay. So now as you are, a successful business person and you've you've put together a great life a, in Thailand if you could go back and talk to your 30 year old self and give yourself uh, one piece of advice what would that be uh i think muhammad ali had uh, a quote and he said my only fault was that i didn't realize how great i really was and that quote uh was given to me in, by my colleagues and friends and i put it on my wall and I still think to this day that if I was to go back to my old self, my young self, and even today, is that think bigger, dream bigger, you know, you can do it. There's so much out there. And, you know, have more confidence in yourself. That's what I would advise myself at that time. That's brilliant. 
Brilliant. Okay. And finally, what is one book that everybody should read in your opinion as they prepare for retirement? I think there's a great book. One of my favorites called your money in your brain by Jason Zweig. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but okay. It's a book that really explains that finances is, is an investing is actually a physical activity. And he does it by going through research related to functional MRIs and the like, where they just show the brain waves and the brain reactions of people who are playing in the stock market. And what you can see is that it, it really, the stock market can just play tricks on your, on your brain. So a lot of what I've learned over the years is how to, how to control my brain and how to also, for instance, in my own business where I am trying to pick stocks and pick allocations of assets, it's kind of surprising to most people. But if you were to ask me about what's going on with the stock market, I wouldn't necessarily know at any moment in time. But every three months, there's an exact date that's set ahead of time where myself and my team stop and we work for about three weeks to review everything, every stock in the world that we cover, plus all the assets. And we imagine that we have our money at zero, you know, that we have our money at cash, no stocks. And we say, if we're absolutely at cash, based upon the research that we're updating right now, where will we allocate? And so, you know, that's probably, probably uh, it, it helps to get rid of the emotional bias, as you see, I do a lot of that. So that, that book, Your Money and Your Brain, helped me to really realize that it, it is really a contact sport and you have to work hard to separate your dysfunctional brain sometimes from doing wrong things in the market. Interesting. Okay, I'll have a link to that as well in the show notes. And then finally, where's one place that uh, our listeners can go to learn about Andrew Stotts? Just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and uh, listen in. And then also, if you want to contact me, you can just click on the about page and contact me and just send a, a message there. And it comes directly to my private email. So I'm happy to talk to anybody. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for this. This has been great. And uh, give your mom a hug for me. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much for having me on. And I hope it's of some value to the listeners. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com.